0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 5th of March, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its effects on Australian politics. Yet more floods in Queensland, but just don't mention climate change. And we find out who the Australian progressives are and what they'll be doing at the next federal election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics.
2: I'm David Lewis, darling of the paparazzi.
1: And just to let our audience know that we've been affected by the flooding in Sydney during the week and it's affected some of our production so our dulcet tones won't be as crisp as they usually are but we are determined to put out an episode every week irrespective of how bad the weather is and we'll sort out these issues before our next episode. a big thank you to our new patreon subscribers thanks for signing up and if you'd like to support new politics you can support us through a patreon subscription it's just five dollars per month for the ruby standard supporter level or ten dollars per month for the gold standard supporter level we also do have a new t-shirt design available it's the it's time for change t-shirt But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is continuing, this is one of the more serious international events in recent times and it's hard to know exactly what the end game will be here. Australia has committed $100 million of support to Ukraine and we just have to have the usual caveats here, that's what's been announced, we just have to wait and see whether that ends up actually being delivered or not, but it's a start and part of the international efforts to end the conflict as soon as possible. Australia does have to do something and be seen to be doing something about the Russian invasion in Ukraine. but. Ultimately, all politics is local and Australia's actions at the moment are playing to a domestic audience, especially in the context of the federal election coming up soon. Is the Australian government doing the right thing? Should it be doing more? Should it be doing less? Or is it just about the right amount?
2: It's hard to know. First thing first, we have to acknowledge that the Australian government currently aren't the most nuanced thinkers and aren't the most competent executors of uh, policy and diplomacy. Having said that, it's a war that has uh, attracted the attention of the whole world. And of course, we have a Ukrainian community in Australia. And of course, Russia is a major power. Ukraine is a middle power. It's to do with NATO, which ties in the United States. When I say it's to do with NATO, at least uh, ostensibly it's to do with NATO, it's also a conflict that has garnered the world's attention. I guess there are those of us hoping that it's not a Spanish Civil War type thing where it was really just the first act to a major conflict down the track. There are others comparing it to the, the opening years of World War II others comparing it to World War One. I. I myself think it's probably closer to Crimea as an empire tries to extend its influence perhaps further than it's able to. The Australian government has done what it likes to do best, which is make a few announcements, made some promises, which it may or may not keep. And, uh, and let's be fair, it may not need to be kept either. Uh, Germany, for example, a country that is limited to its defense budget being no more than 2% of its GDP, has sent over arms. Switzerland has closed off Russian transactions in its banking system. This is, I think, unprecedented. Switzerland usually remains steadfastly neutral. The Russian ruble, last I saw, worth less than one cent in US dollars. So the Russian economy has collapsed. To be fair, Australia may not need to do anything. I think the main focus of it here has been to try and posit Scott Morrison and the government as a wartime government.
1: Well, Australia is part of the international community, but it's nowhere near being a key player or nowhere near being the key player that it thinks that it is. But it does have to take some action. But whatever it could do or would want to do, it's limited by the existing international structures that we do have in place, mainly through the United Nations. And it's right that Australia does become involved somehow in a positive way, but I can't help feeling that if an election wasn't coming up soon, we probably wouldn't have much government support or much of a government response at all. And before people start saying, well, you would say that you're not a supporter of the government at all, and that's absolutely right. But we also have to compare the actions of the Australian government now With the actions during the breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s and those conflicts in Bosnia and Croatia they lasted for over three years and that's about the only similar example that I can think of in Europe over the past 30 years but Australia's involvement at that time was virtually non-existent in Bosnia and Croatia there was a belief that it would primarily be resolved by the major world powers and European countries through the United Nations Australia wasn't even asked to provide peacekeeping forces and provided around $10 million of assistance over five years. The civil war and the breakup of Yugoslavia, it was seen as a distant conflict. Most people didn't know what it was about, similar to the Ukraine-Russian conflict at the moment, and Australia did keep its distance. And we also have to compare Australia's response when Russia annexed the Crimea in 2014. The Abbott government put in a few financial and travel sanctions against 11 unnamed Russian political figures. And to be fair, that's probably all they could have done anyway. But essentially, there was no promise of money. There was no promise of the lethal aid that Scott Morrison is promising now. But at least it has given the Prime Minister an opportunity to talk tough.
3: Today, uh, to further uh, increase the support we're providing uh, to Ukraine and to, our NATO, to the NATO and all the members of NATO, um, we will be answering the call. Um, from President Zelensky. President Zelensky said, don't give me a ride, give me ammunition. And that's exactly what the Australian government has agreed to do. We will be committing 50 million US dollars to support both lethal and non-lethal defensive support for Ukraine. The overwhelming majority of that, that's some 70 million Australian dollars, will be in the lethal category. We're talking missiles, we're talking ammunition, we're talking supporting them in their defence of their own homeland in Ukraine and we'll be doing that in partnership with NATO. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because I don't plan to give the Russian government a heads up about what's coming their way, but I can assure them it's coming your way.
1: And it's not like the war in Ukraine just commenced last week. It's been ongoing since 2014 in those breakaway republics within the ukraine borders and of course this is on a more serious level this current situation this is an invasion whereas the actions preceding have been proxy wars within ukraine supported by the russian government but it's hard not to think that there's quite a bit of political opportunism going on here Uh,
2: definitely there are pro-russian areas in ukraine This gets into highly subtle stuff that paints too many people with the same brush both ways. So the invasion was probably avoidable. And so there are other factors at play here. A lot of it is to do with not just a long-standing border issue or control issue, but Ukraine has a lot of natural resources that Russia would love to get its hands on. So there's all of that as well. None of this really matters to Australia to be really brutal about it. But the Prime Minister was hoping to posit himself as a wartime leader in the mould of Robert Menzies or John Howard. Nobody seems to be buying the idea of Morrison as wartime leader. We have an incompetent thug bully boy with no plan, no clue, no idea and no competence to be able to get through this.
1: And just taking it away from an Australian context just for a little bit, just to show that we can talk about international affairs as well, this conflict could be drawn out for a long time or it could be over and done with quite quickly. But as we explained in our previous episode, this is a very complex international situation and complex situations in international politics take a long time to resolve. But in some ways, Vladimir Putin has already lost this war. There's been sanctions. The Russian ruble is collapsing, as you mentioned before. The funding of this war is costing $1 billion a day. There's been the loss of face for both Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation as well. There's a loss of World Cup qualifying football games and this is very important to a populist dictator. Clever leaders can achieve their goals through non-military means but this type of Russian invasion is 19th century imperialism and ultimately it's bad politics in the 21st century and trying to achieve political goals using the military is usually a sign of foolish leadership. Now, there have been suggestions that Putin wants to return to a Soviet Union structure, but that's never going to happen. No one ever talks about the return of the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire or a return to Yugoslavia. And even if he tries a de facto Soviet Union set-up, which is obviously what he's trying to do by setting up a puppet regime in Ukraine. He's already got that in Belarus, which is right next door to the Russian Federation, but it also reveals the mindset of someone like Vladimir Putin. He's only 69, but this seems to be the actions of an unstable leader, and this could ultimately see him deposed or the start of a civil war within the Russian Federation itself.
2: Anything could happen. It's likely that Putin has lost his grasp on reality as the tension has ramped up. And he's surrounded by yes-men too. When you're in a high-pressure situation, you do want someone calming you down, settling you down and saying, let's look at the broader perspective in this thing. Where are we heading with this? He doesn't seem to have anybody doing this. The Russians, as of speaking today, are losing the war, not just from a moral standpoint, but from a tactical standpoint too. If the numbers are correct, and we must never forget that truth is the first casualty in war, uh, the Russians have lost more than the Ukrainians have. And the lesson of Vietnam, the lesson of Afghanistan, is that a large standard army cannot be a motivated civilian army. They tried it for 12 years in Vietnam, or more, really, and they tried it for 20-something years in Afghanistan. Both ended up badly. In fact, it's more than that because America and the USSR and Britain at different times tried controlling Afghanistan against really a civilian army. So Putin is playing a very high stakes, very long odds game with a very weak hand.
1: There's also one other interesting factor that has become apparent. And we talk about the sort of involvement or the relationship that Australia does have with Russia and there is one. Rupert Murdoch and Vladimir Putin do have a close relationship and there is an understanding that Vladimir Putin did many favours for Rupert Murdoch in the early 2000s through the easy purchasing of very profitable advertising companies in Russia and when I say easy I mean literally killing off and murdering the competition and The Murdoch empire was having financial problems in the early 2000s, and having access to the Russian billboard market was a massive bonus for Rupert Murdoch. And in recent times, Fox News in the US has pretty much been pushing pro-Russia propaganda through their prime time opinion host, Tucker Carlson, and Fox News is owned by
4: the News Corporation. Why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? They're both foreign countries that don't care anything about the United States. Kind of strange. Since the day that Donald Trump became president, Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. It's not a suggestion, it's a mandate. Anything less than hatred for Putin is treason. Many Americans have obeyed this directive. They now dutifully hate Vladimir Putin. Maybe you're one of them. Hating Putin has become the central purpose of America's foreign policy. It's the main thing that we talk about. Entire cable channels are now devoted to it. Very soon, that hatred of Vladimir Putin could bring the United States into a conflict in Eastern Europe. Before that happens, it might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. So why does permanent Washington hate him so much? If you've been watching the news, you know that Putin is having a border dispute with a nation called Ukraine. Now, the main thing to know about Ukraine for our purposes is that its leaders once sent millions of dollars to Joe Biden's family. Not surprisingly, Ukraine is now one of Biden's favorite countries. Biden has pledged to defend Ukraine's borders even as he opens our borders to the world. That's how it works. Invading America is called equity. Invading Ukraine is a war crime.
1: And statements like this were being broadcast on Russian state-controlled television stations. It's almost verging on treason and sedition. But this follows on from Rupert Murdoch's support for Donald Trump, who was also a supporter of Vladimir Putin's, so it seems like we've got a bit of favourable payback here Putin helped Murdoch in the early 2000s Murdoch is repaying the favour 20 years later so we've got this bizarre situation where the man who owns 70% of the newspaper media in Australia and substantial other media and television interests in Australia as well and He's also a major supporter of the Liberal Party and the federal government in Australia. He's actively campaigning and propagandising on behalf of the Russian government in a war that the Australian government is offering support to the other side.
2: The whole pro-Putin thing, there's a large part of Trumpism in it, or at least American Trump followers, because Trump could really only get funding from Russian sources. This is well documented. And so... We had the bizarre situation of American Republican voters stating that they'd rather live under Putin than they would under a Democratic president. And things that are so totally bizarre. One wonders what Barry Goldwater or Richard Nixon or Henry Kissinger, who's still alive, really thinks of this and how the Republican Party has changed. Also, the Murdoch and News Corp are smart enough to know that there's not a lot of public support on the Russian side. So they're trying to walk that fine edge by supporting Putin, by putting in pro-Russian things, but also understanding that at the moment, President Zelensky is a very popular figure. Uh, and in Australia, for example, compared to our own Scott, I don't hold a hose mate, Morrison, Zelensky put on a flat jacket and went straight into the front lines. Again, I'm not sure that this is the best thing to do but I'm not there and it's much more desperate than thankfully we've ever had here in Australia. It's extraordinary. We haven't had many wars based on the acquisition of land in the 20th century. It's all been about resource control really or our geopolitical advantage.
1: And just bringing it back to the federal government because a lot of people have been asking us well how will the conflict in Ukraine affect Australian politics and the next federal election? And the answer to that is, well, probably not much. It's probably still too early to see how the Russia-Ukraine crisis is going to affect local politics. But in a news poll during the week, there was no change at all in the polling. If anything, it's a little bit worse for Scott Morrison. It's still at 55% for Labor and 45% for the coalition in two-party preferred voting. But There have been suggestions that all of this will play out to the coalition's strengths on national security, and we do have to point out that these are just perceptions. If anything, Labor's performance on national security has been slightly better over the past 50 years when they've been in government, but that's a moot point. In politics, it's all about what people believe, not what actually happened. And we can see that Scott Morrison has been putting on the Tough Guy Act during the week. Part of that has been a correct response to an international crisis, but he'll use this performance as much as possible to put himself in a position as you referred to before of being that wartime prime minister the wartime leader even though the war isn't happening here it's happening 15,000 kilometers away and he will portray Anthony Albanese as being weak and that's something that it's impossible to test because Albanese is not in a position that we can adequately compare anyway but the longer that this conflict goes on My opinion is that there will be less of an effect and influence here on the Australian public, and it's just a sad fact of warfare in the televisual age that people get immune to the death and misery that they see through the media. They're just glad that it's not happening to them and it's actually happening somewhere else, and they just move on. That's pretty much the story when the war in Bosnia took place in the 1990s. That's what's likely to happen with the Ukraine conflict, and it's probably what will happen with the wars in the future as well. So the upshot is... It's probably not going to have much influence on the outcome of the next election, even if the war in Ukraine is still going on at the time of the next election, unless it spreads to other areas such as the Baltic states or parts of the old Soviet Eastern Bloc. So it's still a little bit unpredictable at the moment.
2: Yeah, unless Australia commits on ground troops, and I don't think they will, there's nothing in it for us except to support an an underdog country. And anything can change. This type of things, too, in a war situation, things change daily. Advantages turn to disadvantages. Countries change their mind. Wars start, wars end. Wars get unexpectedly more intense or unexpectedly less intense. As we stand this week, and I'm really stretching it saying this week, but. There's no advantage to Australia to commit troops. They may send across the money they've promised. They don't have a great record in sending over the money they've promised to various things, but that may happen. It may be that advisors go over, but I don't know that Ukrainians need military advisors from a country with completely different geopolitical aims and ambitions telling them what to do. I think Morrison has probably... And I think he's realized even by now that trying to posit himself as the great military leader isn't going to fly because there's just no way he can make it. Now, for John Howard, a much more subtle thinker, a much more competent person, a much more effectively ruthless leader, things might be different. But I don't see the the depth of thinking in which Morrison might be able to turn around and and make it one about him and to make it about him in a positive way. And again, there's too much happening in Australia. There will come a point where Australians will stop worrying about the war in Ukraine and start to worry about the things happening here.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, it's flooding in Queensland and New South Wales, but just don't mention the effects of climate change.
1: the modern history of flooding in Queensland, there were major floods in 1893 and 1974 in Brisbane, and again in the summer of 2010 and 2011. We were told at the time that these floods were once in 50 year events, but since the floods of 2011, there have been floods in 2012, 2013, 2017, 2019, and now in 2022. The media keeps reporting these events as once-in-100-year a events, but they are becoming more frequent and people are making the link between these more frequent flooding events and climate change management or mismanagement. And this is the link that the federal government isn't keen to make and would prefer to not talk about climate change at all in the lead-up to the next election. And it's gone so far to avoid this by covering up a report looking at how high-risk weather events were going to affect eastern Australia up until April this year and the action that was needed to alleviate some of these effects. This report was prepared in November 2021 and presented to National Cabinet, but it seems that no action has been taken, and of course governments can't stop floods and extreme events from happening, but they can be prepared for when these events do occur, and it seems that they had a great deal of forewarning about it and have failed to act. Now, we don't know the full details, it's all been covered up, but it seems like yet another dereliction of duty by this federal government.
2: What they want is less government. This whole, got to get the government out of your life, except for key things, which I'll get back to in a minute, includes government not helping in times of desperation. You're unemployed, get a job. There are no jobs, you must be at fault for that. You're disabled, work it out. You're an old person who needs care. We've set up a private mechanism to help you. You don't like it, the market will sort it out. When it comes to flooding, well, you've all got boats you can sort it out. And unfortunately, we have this level of thinking at two levels of government in New South Wales. We have it at the federal level and we have it at the state level. So there's been very little government help in northern New South Wales. The Queensland government, I believe, have gone in and helped where they can. But you really need a coordinated federal state effort to help this
5: access their stores because there's still floodwaters uh, right in the heart of Lismore but we're still talking about Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of businesses that we've seen this morning in a similar predicament to this. Where do you start? How do you rebuild? I don't think these things have even crossed people's minds at the moment, uh, but certainly it's a long journey ahead. And and as I mentioned, what we're seeing here is just absolutely devastating at the moment. I mean, you look at this and you think, how? And And you look across the road, and there's petrol stations, and there's automotive stores, there's the Woolworths, there's the Kmart, there's the Big W, there's literally every single store in Lismore has been impacted by flood water in some way or another so you have to ask yourself where are all these people going to go to get their groceries for the next few months where are they going to go for their essential services how can Lismore realistically survive and rebuild from this in a short period of time, the answer is they can't. And we haven't even really been exposed to the, uh, I guess, the full picture here, guys. From what we're seeing on the outskirts of the CBD, it's complete devastation. Um, and something like this, the enormity of this, it's, it's not a thing that's gonna clear up over a couple of days. We're talking about a timeline of several weeks and months just to get back up and operational. So what that means for some 50,000 people who call Lismore home, it's a very scary picture.
2: It could be that we're looking at Scott Morrison's own Pentecostal faith. God will reward those who deserve it and punish those who don't. I'm less inclined to think that it's fully that. I think that he would probably justify it in that way to other adherents to that cult. But I also think that he's really just coming through this notion of the small government libertarianism. And, of course, small government libertarianism is just fascism by another name because it's letting corporate interests into government space. And the corporate interests, of course, are only interested in making money. So they just shovel the money out and leave. Look at Aspen Medical, who failed in their duty time and time and time and time and time again. Look at Wilson. Look at the Cayman Islands water. There's a lot of improper ties between these private interests and government, some of which we can't know because they're tied up in the Cayman Islands, some of which we can know, but there's a bit of digging to do. And people like uh, Michael West, for example, are very, very good at untangling the administrative knots and working out who's involved where. So Morrison and Perrottet in New South Wales are basically not doing anything because they don't believe they should do anything. This has led to all kinds of problems. I don't see how they can win the election on a tactic like this.
1: Well, climate change is a negative issue for the coalition. They undid all of that work that the Labor Party had instigated or initiated on climate change. They repealed the carbon tax. They repealed the minerals, resources, rent tax. They abolished the Climate Commission. And they celebrated all of this in Parliament in 2014. So they've done absolutely nothing on climate change policy except produce a few glossy brochures, a few television advertising campaigns, gaslighting the public about all the great achievements the government has achieved or reached on climate change, even though they've done very little about this. And they're just hoping that the whole issue will go away. But whether there's a belief or not about climate change within this government or who or what is causing it, the effects of climate change are very, very real. And it's best for governments to be prepared for these situations, but this is a government that doesn't even want to be prepared for when these events occur. In November last year, the Bureau of Meteorology, they briefed the National Cabinet, comprising the Prime Minister, Premiers, Chief Ministers, outlining the high-risk weather events that were facing eastern Australia up until April 2022. And there was also a presentation from... Emergency Management Australia, outlining the increased chances of widespread coastal flooding, erosion, tropical cyclones and heat waves. Now, I'm not suggesting that the effects of climate change can be acted upon in two or three months, but the national leaders who were at this presentation, and that includes Scott Morrison, Dominic Perrottet and Anastasia Palaszczuk, they're all claiming that these are once-in-a-lifetime events, and the dates just keep getting pushed out. Perrottet was actually claiming that it's a -a once-in-a-500-year event, and they've been completely caught unawares, but I'll tell you what can be done within a three-month period. If you've got a warning that these events are likely to occur over the next six months, well, you can prepare the community. You can prepare your emergency response teams. You can prepare for contingencies and evacuations. You can allocate an emergency funding protocol so that money can get out to the community as soon as possible. Now, David, you and I were not at those meetings, so we don't know exactly what was said, but At the very least, there should have been national leadership and national plans put in place. Governments were warned about these events, and now they want to cover up the reports that told them all about it.
2: One of the things that the Australian Public Service is very good at is this type of preparation. Getting the policies ready. We know that there's a severe weather storm coming. There's action A, action B, action C, depending on the the way things turn out. They have, of course, a bushfire fund that they haven't paid out disgracefully that has earned $800 million in interest. Now, there's a few people who doubt that this fund actually exists, that it's all just accounting trickery to make it look like, and this is why they haven't paid it paid it out. The money isn't actually there. But that $800 million in interest would be enough to help the people of southeast Queensland and to help the people of Lismore. Last I heard there were 400 people unaccounted for in lismore i think there were 11 deaths in queensland all of which avoidable and we haven't looked at death of livestock and damage to business and the the whole of that thing and a palaché of course was very cagey in trying to avoid climate change because the queensland economy is reliant on industries that aren't in favor of policies that are aimed to improve the environment and that was Disappointing, I think, to a lot of people. And of course, we'd expect no better from Morrison or New South Wales Liberal Party.
1: So, the federal government's response has been quite bizarre. So, we had the Minister of Defence, Peter Dutton. He created a GoFundMe page with a limit of $25,000. He's a senior minister in the Morrison government and he's been a senior minister for some time within this Liberal National Coalition. And Queensland is his home state. Now, He should be able to not just lobby the government to provide a substantial support package, he should be able to demand it and make the instructions to offer a substantial support package. But setting up a GoFundMe page just seemed pretty bizarre. And the Minister for Emergency Management, Bridget McKenzie, she offered $180 per person for relief funding, and that's per person. That's not $180 per day, it's just $180 per person that's been affected by this. And just to put this in context, the Minister's meal and travel allowance for the day that she travelled up to the region to make these announcements is $609 per day. Now, I'm not expecting the Minister of the Crown to spend the night at the local backpackers, but maybe she should. She might meet some interesting people. But in the context of What the minister receives and what was actually required by all of these people affected by flooding, $180 is an absolute pittance. So, and also some more context that we can provide. You mentioned the $4.8 billion government bank account that's just not being used at all. There's $1.4 billion that has been paid to a Brisbane company for offshore processing in Nauru, even though it's had no arrivals since 2014. That company is Canstruct. It's a company which donates to the Liberal Party, so. $1.4 billion to a Liberal Party donor for essentially doing nothing, but very little for people affected in floods. And this is the time when government should step in. When there's a, a national emergency, when there's a national disaster, the community can't do it all by itself. If your home has been washed away by a flood, you need support from the government. But this government just doesn't want to seem to do that at all. There's almost a feeling that if something bad has happened to you, you alluded to this before it's all your fault and it's up to you to do something about it and it's part of that liberalist ideology that individuals need to look after themselves and not expect any support from the government and we've seen this through the lack of support during the bushfire crisis two years ago we've seen it with the slow rollout of the vaccination program funding of the NDIS has been taken away and that message that Scott Morrison put out several months ago that it was time for the government to get out of people's faces and manage their own health. Well, I thought that he actually meant that just figuratively, but it seems that he's been quite literal about this process all along. They just want to remove government, so it essentially does nothing. So it just seems to be this weird combination of Calvinism and prosperity theology, and it doesn't seem to be the right fit for government. Government should be all about helping people, not avoiding them and punishing them when they face a crisis exactly the
2: experiment of no government has failed unless you're a a billionaire paying much less tax than you were unless you're a company like uh, news corp or amazon or harvey norman paying no tax for those of us who still pay tax and are seeing it put into areas that we don't like it's heartbreaking and it's anger making now of course governments with a democracy there's always going to be government money going to places that you don't like. But I would bet that on a poll of people, the vast majority would say, yes, we need to help South Queensland and New South Wales. This is way too much. We need to get government resources in there. Bridget McKenzie said it would take weeks because she has to negotiate with the state governments. I'm not quite sure what the negotiation would be. How much do you need? Well, this is the damage. Right, we can cover 50% of that. Here it is done in a matter of 24 hours or so or preferably you need that much from us we give you the lot without thinking about it and the money's there. With Peter Dutton's GoFundMe page I've seen opinion that it's probably illegal because a minister is not allowed to get money from outside government while they are a government even in this type of thing. So it's quite possible that GoFundMe will take the page down if they agree with that legal advice it's also much less likely but still within the realms of possibility that he could be charged for basically fraud because he should know that an australian government minister is not allowed to raise money from sources other than government sources
1: And all of this is a very strange juxtaposition. We have a federal government which wants the electorate to believe that they can protect Australia from external threats such as China and Russia, and it keeps talking up these threats. But when it comes to local issues... Whenever there's a disaster, they set up a crowdfunding page in response. And it seems that they don't even follow the electoral rules when they set this up. They're reluctant to spend money when it's needed. The Prime Minister goes away on holidays or looks for photo opportunities rather than addressing the problem itself or trying to improve the situation. And this relates to a critical issue that we've brought up many times before, the lived experience of the electorate. The government can talk up national security, can scare the electorate about China and Russia... Tell everyone about how useless Anthony Albanese is or how socialist the Labor Party is, but it won't matter because people's lived experience is quite different to the rhetoric that's coming out from the federal government. They look at the events like the bushfires or the floods and think, well, nothing is being done about that. Would the government be helping out if that was happening to me? Is my life better than it might have been three years ago? I really don't care what's happening in China. I don't care what's happening in Russia. How is the performance of this government affecting me and my family? And based on what we're seeing in the polls at the moment, the federal government isn't fulfilling those expectations.
2: When it gets down to it, paying somewhere close and sometimes over, depending on the car you drive and the petrol you use, $2 a litre for petrol, it's it's going to matter more than an abstract geopolitical conflict between china and taiwan and i know it's not abstract for the people in china and taiwan but for an australian citizen whose businesses or home is at risk of being washed away and whose electricity prices have gone up even though it was absolutely firmly promised that privatization and uh, not going to solar would drive prices down and gas prices have gone up, wages have stagnated. This matters more than European conflicts half a world away. Not to say that we don't care about those things deeply, we've spent 40 minutes talking about them, but if your wage is the same as it was four years ago, but your groceries are a third more, that type of thing matters. Unless they can do something about that in the next 60 days there's going to be a, an oligarchal impact there, I think.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, we speak to Trees Faulkner and find out what the Australian progressives are all about and what they'll be doing at the next federal election
1: We've been running a series over the past few months on independent candidates and some of the new political parties who will be running at the next federal election. And this week, we're looking at the Australian Progressives. They're actually not so new. They were formed in 2014 through an amalgamation of a few smaller parties, including the Progressive Labour Party and the Smashed Avocado Party. And they've already contested a few elections since that time, and they're getting ready for the 2022 federal election as well. David Lewis caught up with Therese Faulkner. She's the President of the Australian Progressives and they discuss what the party is all about and what they want to achieve in politics and at the next election.
2: I'm here with Therese Faulkner, President of the Australian Progressives. Welcome to New Politics, Therese. Thank you very much, David. Why did the Australian Progressives form
6: Well, the Australian Progressives formed quite a number of years ago. Uh, Some listeners might recall the March in March movement, which happened in 2014. So there was a lot of anger around the country um, with the Abbott government at the time and people protesting about policies on, well, lack of policies, I guess, on climate change, angry about the treatment of asylum seekers Angry about the lack of marriage equality, uh, tax system, media ownership, and so as a result of that anger, I guess that was harnessed into um, some political parties being formed. One of which uh, became the Australian Progressives. We thought there was a gap in the political system, basically, and with the those those policy. Positions of the Abbott government weren't being addressed adequately by the opposition. We thought the Greens somewhat filled those gaps, but there was certainly room for another another party in that mix.
2: Are you a founding member?
6: No, no, I'm not. Interestingly, I joined in about 2018 because I was thinking, ah, oh, there's a gap in Australian politics. I need to form my own political party. I think I'll form a party and it will be progressive. Oh, hang on! I better Google to see if one already exists. <laughs> so I Googled and found the Australian Progressives, and ev- everything was tick, 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 tick. Yep, that all fits with my with my values and my philosophy. So I, I joined the Progressives, and since then have stood as a candidate a couple of times, and am now the president.
2: Uh, are you enjoying being president?
6: Yeah, no, it's it's terrific. We have such a lot of energy around the country for this party, and some wonderful volunteers. That it's a really good gig for me. Yeah. So, what's
2: the basic philosophy of the party?
6: Yeah, the the basic philosophy of the party, I guess, in 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 my words, it's uh, around decency. It's around kindness and compassion. But in terms of the formal um, position of the party, we, we are informed by a set of values. And the values, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's a little bit twee, but they all start with the letter E. So we, we are about ethics, empathy, equality, evidence, engagement and empowerment. So that underpins uh, what the party is about in terms of a, of a philosophy.
2: So what are your policies?
6: Well, I guess as evidenced by the name, Australian Progressives, we're we're not a single issue party. So we're not like, say, affordable housing party or child protection party. So we we have a lot of um, policies that cover basically 12 policy categories. Um, We probably don't have enough time for me to go into all of those policies. But what I can say is we have a framework. And I, I think that our policies fit into, into three higher-order policy objectives. So, so one set of policies is around reducing inequality. So we want to get rid of poverty in the country. We want to have um, gender equality. We want to um, reform the tax system so that there's less distance between the haves and have-nots in the country. We want to bring education and health into parity. Uh, for all citizens in the country. So reducing inequality is one pillar, if you like. The second one is around cleaning up politics. So let's let's clean the place up. So this is around anti-corruption. It's around uh, stopping um, political donations from corporations that will unduly influence decision-making that should be made in the interest of all citizens, not in the interest of the wealthy. And our our third sort of area is about long-term, not short-term. We're not about three-year election cycles. We're about let's plan for 100 years, not three years. And in that policy pillar, that leads us to address things like climate change, the environment, and a whole lot of other things that we think are missing, I guess, from politics today.
2: Are you spread around the country or are you concentrated on the east or west or in the north or...?
6: we're federally registered and we have a presence in every every state and territory um so we do have members in every state and territory we we have more members i'd say east coast than west coast but you know i think our membership is steadily growing uh, the more people hear about us the more support we're getting yeah we're we're a growing party
2: who do you see as your typical voter can you give me a description of who would be voting for you
6: Yeah, look, I um, I was having a good think about this um, because I'm often asked this question, but I think uh, our voters will be those in Australia who are progressive, and and that doesn't mean left. It's not lefties necessarily. So I think we will appeal to the progressive-minded moderates and we'll also appeal to perhaps more moderate Greens. So people who favour change or improvement or reform as opposed to wishing that things are just maintained as they are. So, I mean, that's really a dictionary definition of progressive, so we we want to sort of move forward. I think our voter will be, typical voter will be people who accept that that change is a good thing. People who've come to realise, and these are often older, the older demographic, that the two-party system isn't serving us particularly well anymore. So we, we could we could attract disaffected Labor, Liberal, National Greens voters. And I also think there's young people who are looking for a party who cares about leaving a legacy for future generations. I think they're looking at parties like us and us and perhaps the culturally and linguistically diverse people and people of color i think they're looking to see that their interests are represented by a party lgbtiq plus community as well people with disability older people the elderly i think are, i guess those those groups that can see that reducing inequality is, is something that we are mindful of. The, the comfortable middle class white person is probably comfortable with the status quo. Although having said that, I do talk to a lot of people in that demographic who actually care about the rest of the country and, and would happily um, give up some of their benefits for the greater good. So I think we we have a broad appeal. So a typical voter I think comes from all sorts of walks of
2: life. There's a long tradition of progressivism in Australia, often coming out of your more right parties. Menzies is one of the figures in the progressive movement in Australia. Like everything else in Australia, there's a. It's different too if you go to and talk about the same word in America or Europe. Uh, not a lot different, but slightly different. It's it's very interesting historically. Are you targeting any particular seats? Do you think you've got a chance in any particular seats?
6: Look, we're in it for the long haul. We will be contesting a number of seats um, in the next federal election. We haven't locked in our candidates in many of the seats, but we have a locked-in candidate in the seat of Ryan, in Queensland. So, I mean, we, we have a chance in that seat. But to be honest, we will be contesting up to 10 seats in this forthcoming federal election. We want to keep the profile raised. We want the profile to to stay out there. But we're in it for the long haul. Maybe this time we, we'll, we've got a chance. Um, but I think in the coming elections, federal, state, local, I think watch out for the Australian progressives.
2: Do you see yourself as a uh, government party or opposition party, or do you think that it'll remain a balance of power type approach?
6: Well, our vision, we, we have a lofty vision. We, we do see ourselves as, as a potential major party in the future. You have to start somewhere. So this is where we're starting. So growing our base, growing our support, getting into the community. But because of our our, our broad policy base, we do see that we have the potential to be in government or in opposition sometime in the future.
2: Now, the big question that comes from at least one of the major parties is that all of these smaller parties and independents are all really just uh, working with the Liberal Party or you're working with the Labour Party or you're working with the Communists or you're working with other vested interests. It's really just like a Trojan horse. Are you working with other parties or candidates at all?
6: Not really, but um, perhaps to answer that, we have very happily merged with the Progressive Labor Party recently. So we, I guess I can announce that on this podcast, Progressive Labor Party have existed for for quite a number of years, somewhat thwarted by the party integrity bill that was introduced last year, which puts a restriction on party names. But given that our policy platforms are very, very aligned, uh, we have happily merged so that, that's where we are comfortably working with a, another party that's uh, joined us. We, we speak with other like-minded parties from time to time, so those progressive parties with single issues and others. So we, we talk to them, but, be, but you know, we, we're not aligned with any of the major parties. We're not playing any games. We keep an eye on the independents as well. There's a growing movement which has been coined by other people about the the so called teal independence, so the the green and climate independence that are tending to run in this next um, election. You can see that there's a lot of attraction for voters in in looking at some independence. And we certainly feel that there's a place for independence in, in Parliament, but I would like to urge some of those independents to have a look at a party like ours because, our again, our platforms are so aligned and I think being part of a party can um, actually have more power in the number of people behind it and to um, leave a legacy because, I mean, independents, once that person leaves parliament, they may leave a legacy in terms of some change and reforms have introduced but we, we see, I guess, more sustainability in a party such as the Australian Progressives, which is a reason why I personally joined the party rather than looking at um, Pendant myself.
2: Tell us a bit about yourself. You've told us a bit about why you joined the party, but is there anything else? Give us a view of trees.
6: Okay, sure. Happy to happy to share that. Um, I guess professionally, I worked in the um, uh, Australian Public Service with government for an embarrassingly long time. So I was there for about 30 years, including um, as a, a senior executive for many years, mainly working in international development. So um, in the foreign aid and uh, international cooperation area. So I worked with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and with the Australian Agency for International Development when it existed, and I guess a catalyst for me being interested in politics and in progressive politics was spending a lot of time in so-called developing countries, so say Papua New Guinea, um, in Indonesia, Southeast Asian countries, etc., etc. And you can see how terrible things are in some other countries in terms of corruption in terms of poverty in terms of you know that slippery slide into into corruption and where vast differences in wealth make such a a difference and so when I see some policies in Australia going that way it makes me think well we need to stop this because I can see the the outcomes in 20 or 50 years time the other thing is is um investment in strong public institutions. So I think the Australian public service is such a national asset that we undervalue. I think the penny dropped when I was quite a young public servant, which was, ah, okay. So the public service is how things just keep running in the country, no matter who's in charge. We have a fantastic system where wealth is redistributed through the tax system where we actually provide wonderful health services and education services. And gee, the country just runs like this. But that's just not the case in so many other countries. So that's one motivation. I currently work in the private sector. So I left public service about seven years ago, but currently work as head of the International Development Group in a private company doing some contracting work. Um, So I manage some large contracts that we run in um, Papua New Guinea and uh, about 15 other countries. So
2: that's me. Is there anything else you'd like to say?
6: Yeah, look, I think probably just a bit on the two-party system and about voter behaviour. So I think there's just so much media and so much press around, you know, is it going to be the ALP or the coalition, ALP coalition, and voters. I guess a lot of people don't understand the the system of preferential voting and and how to make your vote count. I have heard people say, "Oh, your vote is wasted if you if you vote for a minor party." Far from it. (laughs) So the way preferences flow, a vote for a minor party can be a really powerful thing, or for an independent for that matter, that you're signalling that you are um, are dissatisfied um, with the major parties. Uh, don't forget, first preference votes mean that funding flows from the public purse to that to that first preference um, party or independent. So uh, if you want your funding to just keep flowing into the major parties, put them number one and, and go that way. But if not, vote for a minor party. But if the minor party or independent doesn't get up, your vote will still count if you've got a uh, major party in your list there. Don't waste your vote. Vote for a minor party or an independent first. Put the major parties down the list.
2: I think a good message for everybody to consider at least the power in the system we have here. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Therese. I wish you and the Australian progressives well in the next elections. We hope to see you around for a long time.
6: Thank you so much, David. It's been really a great pleasure chatting with you today.
1: And that was Therese Faulkner from the Australian Progressives and you can find out more details about the party and their candidates at progressives.org.au. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.